And part of the attraction of material is it gives me a chance to do something I haven't done before. And that's why I did Bond, really. Just like, well, I wonder if I can do it. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a love story develops in a beautiful old cinema in director Sam Mendes's romantic drama, Empire of Light. Set on the south coast of England in the 1980s, the film follows Hillary, a lonely woman who works at a seaside movie palace and is engaged in a boring affair with her married boss, Donald. When Stephen, a young new theater employee, arrives on the scene, Hillary senses something kindred in him, and they fall into a tenuous romance. In addition to Empire of Light, Mendez's other directorial credits include the feature films Spectre, Skyfall, and Revolutionary Road. He won the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film for his 1999 feature American Beauty and 2019 feature 1917. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mendez spoke with director Karin Kusama about filming Empire of Light. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Uh, thank you so much for, for being here. And Sam, it is uh, just a thrill to be up here and able to talk to you about this film. Um, Perhaps to get started, can you just talk a little bit about the instinct toward toward making it? What was the first kernel or, or nugget of inspiration? Well, I think the first the first uh, bit of inspiration was was you know when I was a kid. Um, I grew up with uh, a mum who was struggling with mental illness, and I'm an only child, and uh, she was uh, bringing me up on her own, and she didn't have much money, and I uh, and I. As I became a parent, I, I suppose, gradually reflected on what a heroic act it is, not only to bring up a child of, of any sort, but <laughs> to do it when struggling with mental illness. And so that, I suppose, you know, that was the defining part of my childhood. Um, and I've been looking for a way to try and tell that story ever since, but trying to do it without necessarily putting myself on screen. There, there's a a great, there's a Margot Jefferson line. How, how do you reveal yourself without asking for love or pity? Um, and I didn't really want to ask for love or pity. I didn't want to put a kid on because I, th- I think an audience thinks, oh, God, poor child. And then by inference, they think, oh, poor Sam. <laughs> look what he went through. And I, I just didn't want, I just wanted to, to take it away from that and look at her and, and that extraordinary cycle that happens, you know, of um, medication, coming off medication, manic, you know, exhilarated, the crash, and then the, the the repair, you know, the putting yourself back together again. And so that was the the kernel of it, really. That that was what I wanted to write about. And then I had to find a way, um, somewhere to put her and someone to put her with. And so it all expanded out from that point. It, there's a scene later in the film where Michael Ward's character is an audience to a manic episode that felt like sort of the the personal nugget of the film somehow, like the, the just the unveiling 
the pulling back of the curtain. Mm. And I'm wondering if that kind of scene was always intrinsic to the story, this notion of a yeah. witness. Yeah. So that really is, I suppose, the most directly autobiographical scene for me in, in, in the movie, that you, uh, which is the scene where they come and take her into the mental hospital. And the person watching through the crack in the door, as it were, that's sort of me. Um, and, and it was always for me, the kind of one, one of the climaxes of the film, but I wanted to, uh, her to find a way back. I wanted it to be a movie that had a hopeful, that, that, that gave us the possibility of redemption at the end, the possibility of, of, of finding herself again. Um, which I think for those of, of you, if, if anyone here knows people who suffer from bipolar or, or manic depression or whatever you want to call it is the most difficult part of the process is, is, is to try and find a way out. And the, the big turning point is the, the, the scene in which she says, you know, I, I'm, shame is not a healthy condition. She acknowledges that she is ashamed of what she's done. Um, so, yeah, that, that is the centre of the film in many ways and, and one of the strangest scenes I've ever had to shoot because I was, in a sense, recreating um, a scene from my own past directly. You know, the writing on the walls and the you know the the weird details the milk bottle turned upside down and 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 of course what she says and how she behaves and one of the things i think is amazing i mean i think olivia coleman is miraculous in the in the film and i think that in, I, agree. I wish it was here to hear you applaud her um that she she marks those gradations uh, so with such accuracy and and um you know, that scene, I think, is an amazing piece of acting. Oh, it, yeah, it's, um, it has an uncanny quality. And I'm curious for you as a director, when you're directing a scene that's that um, personally charged and probably in your mind, so many questions about its authenticity are, are going straight to your heart, I would think, as you're watching take after take. How did you communicate with Olivia and Michael in the process of a scene like that that is so uh, deeply, deeply personal to you? Um, it, it, was, it was interesting. I mean, I, I, um, I found, you know, what you have to do is in those circumstances like that, I suppose, is unlock the actor's imagination a bit. Um, and so I wanted, I remember saying to her, when you hear the voice of the social worker, what you remember is the last time you were in the mental hospital. You remember her making her a promise that you wouldn't be back in again. So you feel immediately guilt. But you also remember what she represents. And what she represents is the guy who sits next to you at the table in the mental hospital. And by the way, I, forgive me for this, but this is all based on reality. Who, who sick, is sick into his cup and then eats it. Or the guy who can't stop fondling you or the guy who repeatedly beats his head against the wall that's where you're going and then when you hear that voice that's what comes to you and that's so so the intensity of it and and the meaning of that person outside the door is what's important not whether you turn your head here or whether you, you know, I said, just when you hear that voice, everything inside you changes, the molecules rearrange. Because what you're doing in that scene is you're trying to dramatize denial, which is, which is difficult to explain, but it's why you make a movie to try and show it, to feel it. And the denial is, you know, 
that you need help. You know you have to go into that place to look after you because you're you're gonna you're gonna crash if you don't. But you fight with every fiber of your being to not leave. So you you don't want to let her in, but you've got your bag packed. Yeah, that was such a beautiful grace note, the fact that you realize in at the end of the scene that she in fact has been preparing in some right. very real way for this so, moment. So you, you, you can believe one thing and another thing with absolute clarity, and even though they contradict each other. And that, that to me was the... So, so in terms of steering an actor, you give them, you give them, you fire their imagination in a scene like that. And then with a great actor like Olivia and Michael, who I think is sensational, that, that I think they, they, they take off, you know. But at the same time, I was also finding it quite un, unnerving and difficult to watch because it was a recreation in many ways of something I'd lived through, which I didn't really necessarily want to revisit, right? It's a funny thing to go back like that. And so what happened with that scene is I, I, I decided with Roger to shoot it mostly from the point of view of Stephen, looking through the crack in the door. Um, and I shot the scene and I put it together with my editor, Lee Smith, and, and I looked at it and I thought, I've missed the scene. I, I, I've just at the point where I want to get to her, I stepped away from her and I'm watching her. I need to get close. I need to go back and do the scene again. So I said to Olivia, oh, I think I've just missed a couple of shots in that scene. Um, we're just going to do a little close up and it'll be, you know, and I kind of fudged it. And then on the day I said, she said, how, how far back in the scene do you want me to go? I said, the whole thing. <laughs> And she was like, <laughs> "You're fucking kidding me." <laughs> I think might have been her exact, but but then after, but then she flew, you know, and she flew partly because she'd already played the scene, and so she had it was in her body, it was in her muscle memory still a little bit, and and that's where the majority of the scene came was the second time we did it, and it took us only an hour because mm. we I just said right, I'm going straight in, you know, and let's just go. And one of the things I find I don't know about other directors here, but you know, with um, with with digital, uh, and and without the fuss of film, uh, when I say the fuss, I mean you know changing mags and all this sort of stuff and limiting takes. I, I you can roll takes without any worry. You know, you'd have to set it up, and a scene like that, I I just said again, again, until she was in a, in a kind of frantic state, where she was unaware really of what she was doing. We're doing spilling her wine and all sorts of shit, and that was just. It was just letting her fly. Um, and and so that was exhilarating to watch. And she came up afterwards and said, thank you. Uh, I'm glad we did that again. And, and it was a different thing entirely uh, that happened on that day. It's so interesting that that was the process because as I was watching the film, I did some part, some... Some cinema voice told me, I know that Michael's character is in the closet and I wonder when we're going to be there. But then you become so absorbed by this war of wills between who's outside the door and Olivia's character. And what I loved about the scene was that the audience is left with another kind of tragedy after she leaves, which is there was always a witness and that's where it felt so personal to me. That's where it really hit me um, in that just gut, mm. you know, that gut way. And so it's incredible that you got to sort of put it together that way after the fact. Well, thank you, Karen. That's really lovely of you. But it, it, it's also that 
shame if you've been through it, if you if you suffered that kind of um, nervous breakdown or um, manic episode, whatever you you want to call it. The shame comes from the people that have seen seen it happen, and I think that you know it's very it, so that's that's very difficult. But for me, there were two things that I wanted to balance in the film. There's the people inside the room, and then there's the people outside the room, and the, that that goes throughout the film, right? So they, there's the uh, the internal fight, which is and and uh, chaos, which is uh, Hillary's mental state. And there's the external chaos and fight, which is the political situation in the UK at the time, racism. And that's Stephen's journey. And the two needed to run concurrently. And then one during the riot kind of broke in on the other. And, and, and it was, I was aware that I was, I was taking on a lot to take on, you know, mental illness on the one hand and then racism in the UK on the other. But I felt like it was possible. And, um, and and that's the way I viewed it. And also there's another scene in which someone's trying to break in on their inner world. And that's the scene where they, they come to get her from, from hospital. So you know, I, I wanted to be inside the room rather than outside, which is, for example, why when we shoot the riot, we never go outside to see the motorbikes. We're, we view it entirely from inside the lobby. Um, so, so that was, I suppose, um, that was, a, that was a cho- an instinctive choice. There's something about this movie when I think about your body of work and all the different kinds of films you've made and all the kinds of theater that you've directed. There's such a, a breadth and depth of of strategies that you employ for each film. And I'm curious about this one because something I appreciated so deeply about it was um, a kind of effortless craft that also dared to be restrained, which I think is a really hard thing to do when you're working at a really high level to actually keep pulling back and not necessarily just, you know, throwing all your cards on the table cinematically, so to speak. I'd be curious to hear about your process in talking to your designers and your DP about what you wanted this movie to feel like. Yeah. I mean, there was a temptation after 19, 1917 felt through like a a breaking through to a whole other way of working, which was really exhilarating and wonderful. Um, but it was written into the material from day one. I, I, my idea was this is the story and it's going to be one, it's going to be two hours of real time, it's going to be one shot and that's that. And anyone who tried to persuade me otherwise was like, nope, that's what I've written. And it said scene one and then end. There was nothing in between, <laughs> just description. It was like reading a story almost. And so there was a temptation to sort of push it in in another direction, but but for me, style has always been dictated by story and um, and tone, and and so I, I I wanted to write without this time thinking about how I was going to make it. I just wanted to write the story, and and then at a certain point, put it down and go right. How am I going to direct it? <laughs> you know, I didn't really think. I know it sounds a bit weird, but I didn't really think about how I was going to direct it when I was writing it. So as you were writing images and and sort of the way a scene or sequence built wasn't, wasn't necessarily front and center as you were writing. Correct. I, I, I saw atmospheres and, and, and images, but I felt it was still and, and very composed. You know, I could feel that that's what was coming out was something that was more tableau based almost than, than anything like 1917. Um, 
And then, of course, I start working with 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 Roger Deakins. It's my fifth movie with him, and we sort of start each movie like we've never made a movie before. And you know, we need to try and find a way of telling this the best way of telling this story. One of the reasons I think he's a great cinematographer, and and you know, I, I said this. The, I was saying this the other day when I before long before I worked with him, I I thought, how is it possible for the guy who shot Fargo to then his next movie was The Big Lebowski. I mean, if you think about them as, as style pieces, you know, they couldn't be more. One is very observational. The other is entirely, you know, is crazy and, and, and glorious. They're both perfect and they're both entirely themselves. And so that's really what I felt I wanted, you know, I've always wanted to achieve with each movie. Each movie is this different set of rules. And I didn't, I never wanted to repeat myself really. Uh, and, um, and part of the attraction of material is, is it gives me a chance to do something I haven't done before. And that's why I did Bond, really. Just like, well, you know, I wonder if I can do it. Um, it'll get me out of bed in the morning, you know, <laughs> and um, light a fire under me a bit. And and I wanted to sort of pull back from 1917. I wanted to go be very austere and and let and 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 I wanted it to be about the performances. Um, and then Mark Tilsley, who's a wonderful production designer, you know, I I I, I wanted to create this sort of. Um, you know, this, this dynamic between the out, the sort of, um, monochromatic desaturated, um, English coastline in winter, this sort of gray sky, gray sea, empty streets. And then the inside of the cinema, which for me was when I was that age and at that time in history was escape, was warmth and, and womb like kind of, uh, coziness and, and, and imagination and a loss of self and an escape from the difficulties of my life and the difficulties of the, and the political difficulties outside in the outside world. And, and I, I needed that to have color and warmth and oranges and reds and purples and sort of very intense, deep colors. And even when they go into the ballroom upstairs for it to be blues and greens and turquoises, the colors of the sea, you know, and, um, and a, a world of, um, uh, that the represents, you know, everything that cinema should represent, which is, um, an access to a world that you cannot access in your daily life. This is, this is what we build these palaces for. Human beings built them to fulfill a need. You know, you sometimes forget it amidst all the noise of industry and, you know, particularly these days, streaming and blah, blah, blah. No, it's not. We, we want that. That's what we want. We want it. When I, when I um, originally wrote it, I wrote it for, uh, to, to take place in, a, in Brighton, which is another uh, town on the south coast of England um, and I did my research and, and, and I, I read that in 1946 there were 44 cinemas in Brighton 44 it's a small town you know and even in 1981 when I set the movie there were 12 and now there's four so but you know we needed them and um, and I needed it I had to, and it, it gave me my life you know the story the need for story the need to be engaged in another for the brain to go somewhere else that isn't your daily life and I, I wrote the movie in lockdown when we were all worried this was gone you know uh, that we wouldn't ever be in in a dark room with strangers again uh, watching watching a movie or in theaters or in restaurants or cafes and, and and you know you 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 reflect on the fact that we spent so much time during that period worrying about staying alive and keeping our loved ones alive and and making sure the weak were protected and all that stuff and then when eventually you get out of it 
well, what have you stayed alive for? <laughs> um, you know, just to sit in your room again? Uh, or or to, to these are the things we, we, we make uh, to make us, that, that make us glad to be alive, that, that make us, you know, that, that persuade us there are, there are things other than our four walls. And, and so that was all in the mix as well when I, when I was trying to write it. And um, so, yeah, it was pretty ambitious in a way for a small film because it takes on so much. Um, but that's what came out, you know. And some movies, you, I said to you before, you feel compelled to make. Mm. And some people, so sometimes you have a sort of strategic part of your brain that sort of kicks in. Like, yeah, like I said about Bond, you know, Skyfall. I thought, yeah, it'd be great. I can do this. I can do this. And, you know, and I've got some ideas. Um, but it was a choice. This felt less of a choice, you know, more, more, more like something I needed to do. It's interesting because I, I actually feel that from the film, this kind of um, a sense of a calling and that it, the film is about also the power that movies have to, to call to us in the dark and alone when we're most alone and to speak to us and to sort of um, show us a window to another world. And I think it's so interesting that the film is positioned at a time when there were movies like All That Jazz and Being There and The Elephant Man being made that we can say are by far the most difficult kinds of movies now to get made, right? And Empire of Light is in that pantheon now of miracle movies in a way because they're... I wish. Um, <laughs> well, but I mean, but they're, thank you for saying they're, that, they're, I, they're I, dramas. Yeah, yeah and, absolutely. And, and I wanted it to also, but I wanted the cinema, the empire in the, in the movie, to be not an impossibly cute art house cinema where it's playing, you know, Truffaut and, 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 you know, uh, Kurosawa, but instead uh, uh, the sort of cinema I remember as a kid where, mm -hmm. where, you know, you, you did see uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars, but you also saw the movies you mentioned and Raging Bull and, and yes. all that jazz and Gregory's Girl, smaller independent films. Yes. There were independent cinemas, there weren't chains, but they weren't tiny little. So in a way that middle ground is, is what we have lost a little bit. You know, we got the big multiplexes, but they tend to show, you know, uh, superhero movies and franchises and then the, the 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 smaller movies tend to go into the little independent houses and there's not much in between and and i miss that you know mm -hmm. um but it's not an act of nostalgia it's an act of, you know because i think we can all sit there and go oh you know it's all gone now and film projections are it's 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 one of longing and understanding what film means to us the physical aspect of film the fact that when you were sitting even it was just you alone in this auditorium there was one person up there giving you the movie. So they were with you. They were giving it to you. That's gone. That feeling that it's a human exchange. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's gone so much now. Um, uh, having said that, you know, I, I had to queue to see. I mean, I couldn't see a movie without going to the cinema in those days because the television didn't have any movies on. There was only three channels. <laughs> and now you have every movie ever made practically in your pocket literally mm -hmm. you know which is insane mm -hmm. uh, but also wonderful um but at what point in the walmart that is provided to you when you open your, your netflix app or whatever it is how do you find the things that are meaningful and how do those relation how do those experiences distinguish themselves from each other it's just one long stream of of the dreadful word content mm -hmm. you know uh and 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 where how do you make these um experiences stand out you know i've spent my life making experiences that are supposed to be 
viewed for two hours by a group of people in the dark. You go in, you watch it, and you come out again. And if it's any good, you chat about it. And if it's shit, you just say, where are we going to eat? And that's fine, right? <laughs> well, that's fine. That, that's the deal you make. You know, you want to be one of the ones they talk about. And if you're not, well, do another one. Or if you're lucky enough to make another one. So, but that's the excitement of it. That's what I want as an audience. I want to go in, commit to the damn thing, and come out hopefully changed. And, um, and that's the bit I find difficult now is not the, you know, availability, what is or on big screen or not, but the fact that you don't commit to anything. And, and I, and I, that's what I want. What I want is to make a film that people commit to, even if it's to say, I hated it, <laughs> they've committed it, you know, to it. And that, that's, um, that's different. And, and, you know, people say, oh, you know, it's, it's still, we're still doing good. And in terms of admissions, I suppose that's true, but you know, I was reminded the other day um, when I did American Beauty, it played in a, in, there was one cinema, it was on Wilshire, I think, I think it's still, still there. Um, it played there for a year, a year it was on in that cinema. I mean, that does feel like a century ago now, you know, you're lucky to get two weeks or three weeks out of it before it's on your streaming service. And that's just the way the world's moved. But so, you know, it's just trying to find a balance, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I want to pivot for one second because there's a scene where uh, Olivia and Michael's characters are up on a roof and a fireworks show starts. And something I realized I missed was in movies is the sense of place. And I felt the sense of place accumulate up to that moment. And then I felt like I was really up there on the roof. And I have to ask, were you in real... I mean, were you in real locations? Was that a real theater? Was that a real rooftop? Were those real fireworks? Yes. Uh, good questions these days. You need to answer uh, real fireworks on a real rooftop in a real place. Yes, all of those things were real. The one, yeah, hooray. I mean, I, I, we have to <laughs> applaud it because it, it, the reason it felt so spectacular was because it actually happened. Yeah. And I think that that's actually something to yeah. to celebrate the 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 extra work you have to do to do it that way yeah. is worth it yeah. in my opinion. I, I, well, I totally agree. And you know, I, I think, but you know, I, I watched that scene and when I was making it, I watched it and I thought, what about this is better because we did it for real. And I looked at it and, and it's all, Everything. The, it's <laughs> well, it's, the, it's, every, I mean, yes, but you have to try and find, because we're so, we spend a lot of time now trying to recreate. You know, if I were doing that in a movie, a big in a in a Bond movie, for example, I'd probably do a few, and then I might supplement them with other, you know, because it would be a huge set, or some of it would be a CG extension, or all those things. But it's the reactive light, it's the light on their faces, it's the light in their eyes, it's the sound which is real, mm-hmm. um, and the strange echo, the strange echoes, mm-hmm. you know. So it's all the funny little. Uh, things that, uh, that it's the interface between the event and the human being observing the event. That's what's, that's where the reality of it is. So that, that there isn't a divorce between the person and the image. And I think the problem with a lot of the bigger movies now is that you, you don't feel the two things connecting. And in fact, you're so used to seeing them. You've, you've stopped asking them to do that because that's just the language of big movies now it's well it's a big spectacle but it's slightly divorced from the human and you know fair enough if you're making a movie about superheroes and and you know people who wear their underwear over their trousers but that's you know you're you're, you know that's not what i the movie those are not the stories i particularly want to tell so the the only thing in the movie we that wasn't real i mean that 
didn't already exist because mm-hmm. the cinema exists, the, bowl, the ballroom exists, the rooftop, all of that stuff, the seafront, you know, was the lobby because the lobby of the, the real cinema was quite subterranean and mm. small and dark. And I needed it to be quite a grand, I mean, it's, you know, where half the movie takes place. So it needed to be quite grand and the staircases was based on a lobby that I remembered from, um, from a cinema in my youth. And so we found a lot three doors down from the, the uh, from the cinema and we built a soundstage with the lobby looking out at the same view. So we were, we had in a sense had a seafront with two cinemas. We had the exterior and the interior. Mm-hmm. It's a that great cool. lobby. It's a. It feels like a, the church of one's childhood yeah. memories. Well, that's Mark, Mark Tilsley, production designer, did a, a wonderful job there. Yeah. Well, to me, what I want to just echo, I hope, for the audience is our appreciation for a grandeur of emotional scope of character study taking on an epic profound feeling and that's a rare thing today in movies and um i just want to say thank you so much for making the film thank you gary thank you very much (laughs) we are out of time officially um but thank you so much for coming and sam thank you so much thank you thanks everybody thanks so much thanks for listening to another dga q a the director's cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts and please share subscribe rate and review we'd love to hear your feedback and you can help fellow film buffs find the show thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time this podcast is produced by the directors guild of america 